Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein to Go-Go on 3RRR. You've tuned in for an hour of science. I'm Dr. Laura. There may be no Dr. Shane today. He's recovering from a bout of COVID and being very responsible about that. But in his absence, we have an absolute jam-packed studio. We have Tim pressing all the buttons. We have Felicia doing our Twitter feed. And with me co-hosting, we have Dr. Scarlett. Good morning. Good morning. And we have Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Laura. Feels good to be back together again. It does. You know, scheduling worked out. We finally get to be in the same show. And um, I do wish Dr. Shane, you know, didn't have the sniffles and needed to stay at home. But it does mean I get to do space stories because he's not here. There are, there are silving linings. Are you listening, Shane? We're taking over and Ray's doing your space segment. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> We have three guests in our green room. We have an earth scientist. We are going to be talking to two fungal biologists. So I'm excited about that. We also have a fungal hunter tune that we're going to preamble with. We're all excited. Before we dive into our guests, let's do some news. Scarlett, what have you found for us this week? Well, I found something pretty interesting about deep sea plastics. So I don't know if you remember, I think it was a few years ago that they they sort of it became a really big media thing that we have like microplastics in our blood and i remember finding that out and just being feeling absolutely violated <laughs> and this story stuck, uh, struck a similar chord in me so it's about i always think i guess of the deep sea as being pretty pristine it's somewhere humans don't go but as it turns out there are heaps of plastics in our deep sea environments as well so yeah, I guess it's it struck a similar chord with me being a little bit like, oh, that's a bit violating for the deep sea. Um, so I guess as many people listening know, humans make a lot of plastic and it's all over our environment. It's in soil, it's in waterways, it's everywhere. Uh, so here's some numbers to shock you. Uh, 400 million tonnes of plastic are produced per year. Um, 8 million tonnes of that are ending up in our marine environments. Um, sorry, yeah, 8 million tonnes. Now, microbes can... De- decompose these ones uh, these biodegradable plastics Um, we know they do that in all different environments um, but we don't know if the deep sea microbes are degrading these in these deep sea environments where there are actually plastics so this group of researchers uh, they went down to between 750 meters right down to like 5,500 meters put plastic down there and tracked over a year what the plastics were doing Uh, They were looking at the weight loss of the materials, the thickness and the surface morphological changes. And they used like a really cool submersible machine to go down with a robotic arm and look at the plastics and pick them up. Um, So there was some good news. Uh, Microbes were down there and they had similar signatures to uh, what we see being, yeah, what we see on land. So there were some degradations, but some plastics weren't being degraded at all. And I guess what was the most interesting thing that struck out to me was that with the depth of the of the ocean, there was less degradation of the plastic. So that is going to pose a problem in the future, obviously, currently, that um, the really deep sea environments that I would have thought as being the most pristine are the ones that um, are having less degradation of the plastic. So, yeah, that's uh, that was sort of a partially 
uplifting study because we know that plastics are being degraded, but also a little bit of uh, of stuff to think about the, for the future about these deep sea environments and oh. how we're. Yeah, coming into them and putting plastic in there. That's really interesting, Scarlett. And I didn't know about microplastics in the blood. That is extremely alarming. Well, it makes you feel terrible, right? They're in the fish. They're um, in the They're fish. in the water. <clears throat> uh, you said it was. You said 400 million tons annually production of plastics, and about 8 million tons ended up in the marine environment. That's interesting because the effective recycling rate is about 10 percent of the huh. plastics we have. So we're recycling an equal amount, actually. So we're recycling less than what ends up in the deep sea oh, on wow. average. Wow. Uh, yeah, nicely put, that's, right? That's uh, really <clears throat> alarming. What a great study for the researchers with the robotic arm going into the sea. Cool job. Uh, that's exactly why I also liked it. The methodology was yeah. really cool. Yeah. I want to go and use a robotic arm. I'm going to try and incorporate that into my research. Don't know how well it will go working with bees, but... I'm sure we could try it. <laughs> That's awesome. Dr. Ray, what have you got? <clears throat> so, as I said, Dr. Shane is not around. So, finally, <laughs> space is on the table for other people. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I wanted to bring up, and I'm sure Dr. Shane, uh, uh, I'm sure this rover and, and drone have a, or helicopter have a special place in his heart. But it, many of you will know that the Mars helicopter Ingenuity, which landed in February 2021 with the rover Perseverance have been on Mars for a while. And this is, of course, a big deal because it was the first helicopter to fly on another planet. Now, it's a very, it's a dual hel- dual blade helicopter. They're, the blades are a meter long because it's much harder to fly in a much thinner atmosphere. Well, unfortunately, Ingenuity's had its last flight. Uh, and, and they found this out because its last flight on January 18th, uh, something went awry. They're not quite sure how one of the rotors broke, but it landed, but they got a picture, and they, it, the picture has a shadow of its broken one of one of its broken rotors. So it's not going to fly again. Uh, and it was, uh, although it, it was a, seen as quite a success, it was only meant to fly five times and last for about a month. Instead, it's lasted for quite a while, technically three years if you count it on Mars rotations. Um, but it's it's actually been going for for quite a while. It's actually had 129 minutes of flight time, which is well past what they had planned for it. And um, it, they learned a lot more, not just about how that helicopter, how to fly a helicopter on Mars, but there were other things they used it, like to cause dust swirls, to see how dust swirled. Because, you know, it was like a on-demand wind. So they could understand about how the Martian soil responded to that. They're so excited about how successful this is, they are now building an eight-rotor helicopter to explore Saturn's moon of Titan, which is going to launch in 2028. And they also said, you know, it it just changed the dimension on how you could explore with that ability to use aerial um, overviews while you were exploring. And they used it in tandem with Perseverance, the rover. So sometimes the helicopter could scout ahead. Now, I remember talking to Dr. Shane about this, and he said, well, science is great, but, you know, we kind of knew how to do helicopters before, but it's a big deal. They did it on Mars. And and there was something about how perseverance and ingenuity work together that just demonstrated it's not as easy as you'd think. Oh, they just put a helicopter on Mars. Because ingenuity, the helicopter, was supposed to scout for, for perseverance. But sometimes the rover went faster than the helicopter and had to wait for the helicopter to catch up. So getting a helicopter to fly in a very thin atmosphere isn't easy, and it actually flies a lot slower than you'd think. Oh, fascinating. Um, never sounded easy, helicopter yeah. on Mars. <laughs> but, uh, but it's actually a lot harder than even you think. They're like, oh, they got to fly. It doesn't, like, the ro- it's faster to walk. I mean, that means it doesn't move that quick. Anyway, uh, so it was, it, Ingenuity had a great run, but um, 
no more more drone picture no more helicopter pictures from from mars so far but uh i guess we'll hear about one in saturn in a couple of years mm-hmm. or, or a titan's moon uh, saturn's moon titan so uh and um so dr shane's Alice did the helicopter <laughs> well it had a good run and he had a good run yeah. my news this week um, i just love a story about the humble drosophila these the fruit flies you know so much beautiful biology has been discovered in these little guys and i also really like the fact that they have this you know reward system it kind of really shows the the similarities between the fly and humans in the way that we um you know use neuropeptides in our brains to you know instigate these uh, these reward systems Ray, why are you giving me a funny look? You and the insect, you have a lot in common. Did you know, I mean, insects feel pleasure. I mean, there, there's been studies about actually the fruit fly just a couple of years ago. I'm now getting distracted, but how they actually kind of experience sexual pleasure. It was, it was, it was looked into. Now, in this study that was published this week in um, PLOS Genetics, they actually looked instead of, um, you know, the, the pleasure sensors in flies, how they actually deal with rejection. And we all know that, you know, if you feel rejection, you know, animals will be motivated, you know, for their survival, and they will also be motivated to reproduce. So to study failure, they um, studied flies that have been that had been sequentially sexually rejected. So they had three groups of flies, control flies, which are naive, they're in isolation, male flies, right? Um, and then you had flies that had recently mated, male flies recently mated. And then the third group were male flies that um, had been, you know, repeatedly rejected by female flies because the females had just mated. Now, naturally, you go into the methods of the paper at this point to be like, how do you actually set this up in the first place? And, you know, how do you, how do you get these male flies to be rejected? So I looked this up. Male flies were pa- placed with recently mated females three times a day for an hour each with an hour break, four consecutive days. They were monitored and filmed, you know, they're monitored by the researchers every 10 minutes. That sounds less fun than some of our early studies we discussed. Something actually really cool in the methods of these studies, if you ever want to work with Drosophila, is there are aggression arenas that include agarose and apple juice. There are courtship arenas. Everything's filmed. I feel like these flies are a little violated. But their behaviour was compared between the sets of flies. And what they found is that the rejected flies were more active, more aggressive, and less social specifically to other males. And so they had this induced stress response that was induced within these these flies. And this could have gone two ways. It could have been a stress response whereby they're just defeated, and that's why they're a little bit aggressive, they're fl- frustrated, or they're highly motivated. And that's what they found. They were Their frustration resulted in uh, motivation to obtain sexual reward. When you put these rejected flies back in with females, they highly invest within sexual behaviour. So when they are placed with virgin flies, compared to virgin males... Our rejected flies copulated for 3.5 minutes longer than virgin males. Now, it's amazing that, you know, that's a 25% increase. So copulation of a fly, if 3.5 minutes is 25%, that's a surprisingly long copulation period. There were so many facets of biology that... I just adored with this story. Um, But there was also increased levels of genes associated with reproductive success within these flies as well. So more chance of fertility. Now, read in to what you will. You can extrapolate this from, you know, fly to human. I'll just leave that there. I I really thought it could go either way. Like you were talking about they're going to be more more motivated and i thought it was going to be a bunch of guys with like little male flies with little buckets of ben and jerry's ice cream 
sitting in a corner. No, but, they're motivated. Right, they, yeah, okay. they are motivated. So, you know, anyway, let's not extrapolate into, you know, rejected men and their fertility rates um, in our race. But what's the cost? Because there's, there's always a benefit and cost ratio in biology, right? And so the cost for their frustration and putting all this kind of energy into obtaining sexual reward made them less resilient to other types of stress. So they had a decreased survival rate to starvation and also to um, toxic herbicides. So um, they, they had less resilience. So where's the science, even though this is all awesome and we're enjoying it? Yeah, because you said basically the less successful flies that then had to work harder to make died earlier. Yes, if they are exposed to extreme <laughs> conditions. So there is okay. a, there, there's a cost. What the researchers wanted to do is, of course, in trying to understand the reward system, they wanted to link how this could be controlled. And so they linked this behavior to a population of neurons expressing neuropeptide F, which is sort of a homologue of the neuropeptide Y we have in humans. And they showed that they could control and mimic this social behavior, the susceptibility to starvation, mimicking the sexual rejection by inhibiting the certain receptors on this certain group of neurons, showing that you could um, control this behavior, which... I thought was super, super cute. Flies, they've got it all. Wow. It's always interesting what they manage to do with those Drosophila. Those tiny, tiny Drosophila. Just watching them for, you know, hours on film at a time. I love it. I love it. There's so much going on with those guys. Do they even have a brain or is it just like a neural cluster? I mean, they're... No, they have a little brain. Okay. Yeah. What I did learn is that they have exceptionally long sperm, exceptionally long for the, their body. So much biology going on in these guys. So, okay, folks, we're going to take a break for some music. When we come back, we'll be back with our first guest, Professor Fabio Capitano, an earth scientist from Monash University. So stay tuned. You're listening to Einstein A Go-Go on 3 Triple R. Triple R. In the studio, we have Associate Professor Fabio Cavitanio from the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Welcome, Fabio. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Fabio is here in a full studio with us. Now, you work on planetary development, tectonics and seismicity. Now, for biologists and all our listeners at home, can you explain exactly what that is? Uh, it's very simple. It's, uh, have you ever wondered how the Earth works? Uh, that's essentially plate tectonics, why we have topography, why we have oceans, why we have uh, water, uh, why we have mountains, uh, how they form. And of course, the, the ultimate question is uh, why life, why we have life, because life, of course, relates to the evolution of a planet. We are the only one out there, as long as, as far as we know. So it's interesting to understand how the planet works and how the life came to be. Fascinating. But that is such a big question. If you're, you know, if you're thinking, how do you go and do a PhD on that? For you yourself, where, where did you start in your research? What questions were you asking? Uh, essentially that. So try to understand uh, the world around me. And uh, there's a lot of phenomena out there. And uh, all of them, they relate to nature. So everything we know, everything we can imagine, everything we, we study, we've ever studied, always the, the inspirations come, come from nature. And how do you do that? Uh, uh, good question. Uh, just observing. I just sit down and observe things around me and something will pop out and say, aha, how can we explain that? This you're is good enough? <laughs> you're observing in your office on a computer or...? Uh, um, you've probably heard that, but as scientists, we always observe. So sometimes inspiration comes, I don't know, under the shower. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, getting back to, to plate tectonics, I just wanted to... When you say formation of life... Are we talking about because we make 
plate tectonics as they move and form mountains um, create environments or is this like volcanoes or life at deep sea events? So what are some of the, you say observe, but as I understand it, you also use computers as well. So how do you connect observations to what types of things are you simulating or modeling? Um, our field is, uh, uh, unfortunately, is one of the, the few that cannot run uh, direct experiments because we, we would need the incredible amount of forces that we don't have and an incredible amount of time that we don't have to, to wait for the answer. Well, creating earthquakes might be frowned upon as well. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in general, earthquakes, they're very short in time, but they are the result of a million of years of, uh, we cannot uh, do that. So we do that to using principle of physics to simulate using uh, supercomputers. We have a good one here in Australia, and uh, we essentially, if you can imagine, um, you know, a reproduction on a computer of a falling apple on uh, Newton's head, we do the same. Use the same principles, Newtonian physics, uh, fluid dynamics, uh, things that uh, remind you honey deforming, water flowing, the same physics, uh, but of course, times million years and thousands of kilometers. Oh, what? And say, coming back to earthquakes, is that something, you know, some of your research is focused on earthquakes, and are you moving towards, where are we with earthquake prediction? And, you know, the use of AI, are we going to be at a point where we can just predict when earthquakes are coming? A simple answer, never. We will never be at the point of predicting. Damn! <laughs> <laughs> We're all disappointed, but w- so where are we? Uh, where are we? Um, uh, not, not far. Unfortunately, after Platonic uh, is a theory that came up uh, in the middle of the last century, we still are um, on the idea of a simple sketch that explains uh, why earthquakes occur. We understand that. But of course, when and exactly when and exactly why is a little bit more difficult. We've made a, long, uh, a lot of effort lately uh, with a number of researchers around the world. Um, and we now simulate with a computer all of those million years of plate moving together, deforming, and then suddenly releasing that deformation, uh, that, that stress, uh, that compression into very rapid uh, deformation, which is the earthquake. We can now simulate uh, that with a computer. Uh, we can reproduce uh, the, the mechanics, the underlying mechanics. But understanding all the idiosyncrasies of different parts of, of the planet, it's still, uh, it's still um, far away. That's where AI can probably help. And so is this where AI will come in and, you know, so AI won't get us to a point of being able to predict when they might occur based on sort of fault lines? Okay. But from your simulations, you can tell the sort of impact that earthquakes that are occurring can have. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, there's two uh, different uh, branches there. One is what would be the, the evolution in the millionaire range. So whether we're going to build mountains or create new uh, oceanic basins around subduction zones. And another one is essentially the hazard. That's, that's a whole different, uh, different science. So earthquakes are, are the result of, of plate tectonics and moving. But as I understand it, you know, plate tectonics are also responsible for the formation of the continents. And, and plateaus and mountains, but I, I saw in your, your descriptions, you also said atmosphere. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about how plate tectonics are affecting atmosphere and climate? Because that's, 
I, I always, I've always heard the term, you know, I remember going on a tour of Cradle Mountain and I got told, we, you know, we're standing in a draft. They're like, oh, this is a microclimate down the mountain because of the way where the wind goes. So how exactly do plate tectonics drive climate or, or atmosphere? Because that sounded fascinating to me. Um, in the first place, plate tectonics is responsible for making an atmosphere. So essentially it's created all the, the oxygen and other gases that were inside the planet came out. That's the only planet as far as we can but also interacts during the evolution because um, we all know that uh, uh, mountains, they uh, force the circulation of the atmosphere. So how do we create mountains in the first place, eventually, which is plate tectonics, eventually on the long term will have uh, an impact. It's a simple case. Now we talk about anthropogenic forcing, but of course this is just the last three seconds of the evolution of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And another simple, another um, textbook case that I st- I'm studying lately, it's the monsoon. So you essentially uh, raise the Himalaya, raise this incredible front, you block all this air coming from, from the ocean, and you force the, the monsoon intensity. And that monsoon, the intensity of the monsoon, over million years is going to erode the whole mountain and fill in the Bengal fan. The Bengal fan is something that filled in in 50 million years and it's the thickest sedimentary cover we have. Uh, 50 million years of erosion of the Malaya uh, with the monsoon. It's, uh, it's a, a, a striking example of interaction between climate and tectonics. So would you call it a feedback system? That it is between the atmosphere and the plate tectonic systems like just feeding into each other and causing change just back and forward absolutely it is a feedback it's called um, a negative feedback in this case feedback can be positive and negative mm-hmm. so what happens is that you raise these mountains um, the erosion will draw atmospheric co2 from the atmosphere we put it in the sediments transport it in the riverine system and leave it in the ocean uh, and in time these mountains coming up, we're going to draw so much uh, atmospheric carb- car- carbon dioxide, CO2, that eventually will cool the planet. And this is what happens. So 50 million years ago, uh, million years, so 50, <laughs> a long time ago, the Earth was uh, around 15, 16 degrees hotter than today, and then started in 50 million years cooling so much that eventually we entered uh, an ice age. This is where the system um, stabilizes because of the feedback. So, Fabio, the things that you work on, they sound so massive and abstract to a cell biologist like myself. You know, I work on uh, gene X uh, that binds to molecule Y. How, you know, so with your current research, what, what's your plan for the next 10 years? What are the challenges and where do you hope to be sort of 10 years from now? Uh, research-wise, I suppose. Yes. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm still fascinated by this, this uh, open uh, question. As a scientist, obviously, I want to contribute to um, improving the quality of uh, uh, our life on, on, on the planet. And uh, topics, hot topics now are that uh, climate and the future of our climates, because we really have to understand to which point we can uh, push the planet. Uh, of course, we always talk about anthropogenic uh, impact, but uh, the geological response is important. We have to understand how the planet works, uh, because it's our home. And that, that's going to drive my, my interest. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thank you so much for coming in and spending your Sunday morning with us. We just loved hearing about your research. Everybody, we've been talking to Associate Professor Fabio Capitanio from Monash University. Now we'll take a short break and we'll back be, then be back with our next guests. You're listening to Einstein Go Go on 3RRR. Triple R. Triple R. 
Now, with us in the studio, we have Dr. Hashini Wurangisingi and Dr. Francois Oliver, postdoctoral fellows from the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash University. Good morning. Hi. We are so happy to have you with us. Thanks. We're very happy to be here. And particularly, we're excited that you're both fungal biologists. Now, fungus, everybody's talking about it. I mean, I know it was a year ago that we were all watching the TV series The Last of Us Mm -hmm. with our fungus pandemic that, you know, is... So are we at any threat of that? Should we be worried? And are you guys cooler? So Hashini is the Last of Us uh, specialist, I think, in Um, our lab, because I didn't make it past episode three. That was just too devastating for me personally. Um, Will there ever be a fungus epidemic? Short answer, no, not one exactly as it is in the, The Last of Us. But should we be worried about fungi? Absolutely, yes. Can we first break down for everybody that doesn't think about fungi daily... What's the difference fungi, between all the microbes, fungi, bacteria, viruses? Yes, yeah, so uh, the main thing, I guess the, the, the most important point to make is that fungi are eukaryotes. So uh, bacteria, we know, are much simpler genetically. Um, we we do tend to class bacteria and fungi in terms of the infections they cause. They're, they're both microbes. They're both living. But viruses, most biologists would argue, are dead. Um, but fungi eukaryotes, and that means that they've got a nucleus. Actually, we used fungi early on to understand how mammalian cells regulate their, their genes. So that's how, you know, um, similar to mammalian cells they are. And actually, that's one of the challenges about treating fungi infections is that they're so much like mammalian cells and developing an antifungal medicine that targets a fungus but is not toxic to fungal uh, to mammalian cells that's actually very challenging so we don't actually have many antifungal medicines uh, available in hospitals what are we using at the moment so we've got three or four classes of antifungal uh, medicines Yep, so if we look at, like, the numbers of people that get infected by fungi, it's quite quite a bit. So um, we've got about three, three, three to four million types of different fungi, and of those, only about 600 infect humans, and you have something like 3.5 million deaths a year by fungal infections. And when you compare that to something like malaria, which has about 600,000 deaths a year, that's huge, it's a huge... Uh, gap, but so little is known and so little is done, and there is very little that we have to protect us with, and it's because we have only three basic classes of antifungals, and because we've been using them for decades and decades, there is a serious amount of um, resistance that has been built up over the years, uh, and not a lot of new antifungals are coming out, um, and even if they are, they're not being developed fast enough for us to fight fungi and fight fungal infection. Mm-hmm. And of these, like, 4 million fungi that uh, exist, we don't even know if any of the ones that are, are yet to cause disease can cause disease in humans. There's you know, things like climate change, changing temperatures. You have fungi going into new environments, meeting, meeting human hosts. Uh, these are all opportunities for fungi to then become pathogenic to humans and animals and also to agriculture in terms of plants and, uh, and crops. So there's a huge scope here and not a lot is being done. But fungi can't be transmitted between humans. I'm just 
checking um, that how do how how is it contracted a fungus infection so so that yeah so essentially one thing that can happen is that uh, so you have outbreaks of fungal pathogens in hospitals right so uh you can have a patient become very sick uh the uh, infection it can spread to surfaces if fungus survives on those surfaces uh, often hospital wards become very difficult to uh disinfect and uh, any patients we admitted can can contract an infection just from the equipment there. So in a way that uh, it's not you know, it doesn't spread the way that viruses do, um, but that it can sort of transmit, or you can have outbreaks in, in hospitals especially. And it's sort of uh, kind of intuitive to the way a fungus actually works. So a fungus is sort of a scavenger. It goes out and, and looks for things in its environment and adapts to its environment, tries to live by scavenging. So you have sort of hospitals and, and these kind of environments where fungi have then adapted to live and adapted to thrive in. Oh, just a real naive question. Washing hands, 70% alcohol, do those things still work at disinfecting and killing fungi on surfaces or... Sure, we do that all the time in our lab as well. But, no, no, I have a yeah. child. I can still use it as an argument for <laughs> wash your hands. It's for fungus too. Absolutely, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, that's it. Uh, one important point to make about that, though, is that some of the fungi that cause serious infections are commensal, meaning we carry them anyway all the time. They live on us. They, they essentially always live in that. That their natural environment is our bodies, uh, and it means that if you ever need a uh, sort of organ transplant transplant or surgery that requires you to be on immunosuppressants afterwards, that fungus that you carry can cause a very dangerous infection for you. You mentioned something very interesting before, which is about with environmental change and that sort of thing we could see fungi that haven't been able to infect humans become pathogenic, sorry, yeah, infecting humans. (laughs) Have we seen that happen recently or before? I'm going to I'm going to introduce uh, something Hashini does, which is uh, I think absolutely amazing. And so Hashini works with a pathogen called Candida auris. So here's a, a very important difference between bacteria and fungi. This fungus we didn't see cause infections before 2009. First time that we saw Candida auris emerge as a pathogen was in 2009, and now since 2009 we've seen it emerge independently all across the world. So Hashini's research is actually uh, trying to uh, develop the molecular biology tools that we need to understand how that causes infection. One leading hypothesis, Hashini, do you want to uh, talk a bit more to, so about that? So a lot of it comes from sort of the climate change hypothesis. So, you know, as temperatures rise, uh, you have fungi that... So there's sort of this barrier, right, between the environment and us. We are 37 degrees, the environment is at about 25 to 30 degrees, and so fungi are mostly happy to live in this environmental temperature, but as the temperatures rise, then they get more comfortable and they adapt more to living in this sort of body temperature, and then then they realise, ah, human is a great horse, it's full of nutrients, I don't have to work for this. They jump into a human horse, and that's how you sort of adapt into a pathogen. But also the scary thing with candor auruses, uh, it is uh, multi-drug resistant. So it's resistant to more than one drug and almost 90% of the drugs that we have. So it's very little to uh, fight it. And also in terms of hospitals, there's very little we can do to curtail it. it. It quite easily spreads from catheters or surfaces, sometimes even if they're disinfected, uh, which is kind of scary. Um, and especially in ICU. So during COVID, Candor Oris really was a huge threat because apart from COVID, people were immunocompromised and, and, and catching this sort of like wildfire. Um, and there was not a lot that could have been done. 
So, Harshini, in your research, are you trying to work out why 2009, what happened, say the climate change hypothesis, or are you also looking at what can we do, what new drugs can we make against these funguses? So all of us in our lab, actually, together, we kind of look at alternative therapeutic strategies. So that's not completely abandoning the antifungal approach. Antifungals are great, um, but they're not effective as we would like them to be. So one of the strategies we look at is to pair other existing drugs with antifungals so that we can improve their efficacy. Um, or on the other hand, something that I do is to look at the actual um, biology or the mechan- mechanistic approach of infection. So for me, it's looking at metabolism. So looking at how a fungi lives in a host and how it eats and is it any different from the host? And is there things that we can then target in that metabolic pathway or in that in that sort of metabolism that we can then sort of pull back how how uh, virulent or how effective the fungus is and then give the host a chance to, or a human a chance to fight it. And it's such a biologist thing to do to pair existing treatments with something else to see if you can make it work better. Is there anything that's going into trials, say, in patients with infections? There are some things that are being tried. So uh, I know that there's a a Candida vaccine trial um, that's being uh, tested. Uh, There's a a couple of new antifungal uh, candidates as well, but uh, nothing, you know, to the... uh, It should be stressed, uh, they're very hard to... You know, the antifungal discovery pipeline is is, um, not not as, uh, I guess, um, expanded as, uh, as what you see for bacteria. Um, you'd mentioned in agriculture and plants, is mm. the antifungal pipeline a little bit bigger or more robust in agriculture? Because well, one, great it's plants, question. and two, there's a lot more, well, it's more forgiving. Spinach is more forgiving than people to treat. Yeah. So, so you lose spinach, there's some people that may be happy about that. So, so the, the impact of fungal pathogens on agriculture and crops, uh, food spoilage is, is massive. We know that in Australia, um, a lot of our food sources are impacted by it. One of the concerning things is we know that we've uh, start, had massive increases in the amount of antifungals we've been using, oh, sorry, fungicides that we've been using to combat uh, fungal pathogens. It's important to stress that actually, the ke- chemically, fungicides that we use to treat fungal plant pathogens are very similar uh, to the antifungal medicines we use in the hospital. That's because we don't have many options. And so we know from data overseas that actually the fungicide usage in agriculture does translate to antifungal resistance clinically. And so in the last five or so years, we've seen multiple independent reports of fungicide resistance for canola, for wheat, for barley, all kinds of Australian crops. Uh, That's reflecting, uh, firstly, the increased use of uh, fungicides uh, in our agriculture, um, but also the fact that eventually those fungal plant pathogens uh, become resistant to them. So there's a real danger here in Australia that we actually are breeding new potential fungal uh, pathogens that are uh, resistant already to, to the antifungals we use in, in their clinic. Right. Well, I have a, a squirrely follow-up you may or may not want to take the bite on, and this is that I just noticed I saw a report today or last night that CRISPR is really being used as a gene editing tool for crops in Africa, and that a lot of countries there, as long as it's the same species for the genes, are actually allowing a lot more CRISPR-modified uh, crops to be implemented and there's tests and trials one was for like a weed but it's, it's actually quite extensive so is that type of gene editing a, one of the paths that could become effective in in, in fighting 
um, uh, uh, fungus? Yeah, uh, well, in agriculture, definitely it, it, it's probably an important tool uh, to be kept in mind. Uh, I'd say that it, it will become very important for us to seriously look at alternatives to fungicide use and absolutely uh, at least separate out the chemical classes we're using uh, in the clinic and uh, in for our food sources. Uh, absolutely, you know, I think uh, GMOs uh, potentially in the future, as, you know, climate change uh, exacerbates the effects of fungal plant pathogens uh, or fungal infections in humans, I think it's any solutions can't be ignored. There's also the the opportunity to use gene drives. So they kind of use this in insecticide resistance where they sort of um, have modified insects go out and then take over a population of infecting insects on plants. And that sort of strategy hasn't been implemented when it comes to fungi that infect plants. And it would be a really good one to look at uh, and to mm. see if there are gene drives that you can use in sort of benign fungi then to outcompete the really pathogenic ones. Okay, so we have had a question come in, uh, and this is one I'm quite interested in myself for obvious reasons. I work on bees for our guests. Now, the fungicides that are being looked at, do they harm beneficial pollinators? And how do you approach that more, like, safely if they do? So uh, we know that it's it's a similar thing to in humans. Uh, I can't speak specifically of uh, data for insects, but I know that particularly in in wildlife uh, heavy fungicide usage does have harmful impacts should also be stressed that you know in the uh, medical antifungal drugs that we use they can often be quite uh, quite toxic as well so when hashini was talking before about uh Alternative antifungals, potentially, you know, if we have uh, compounds or new drugs that are target metabolism or target them, their biofilm forming capabilities, that could potentially also be less toxic. So, yes, I think uh, it's very likely. I can say in, in wildlife there are definitely um, toxic effects, and to humans there are some toxic effects, but unsure about insects specifically. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if there. I, I, are they at all like neonicotinoids, like in how they work? Um, like pest- yeah, pesticides and fungicides that you're using in crops, how similar are they? So um, basically all the three categories of fun- antifungals or fungicides that we use target very specific things in fungi. So fungi have a cell wall just like plants have a cell wall um, and they have enzymes that then make that cell wall. So those are the very specific things that are targeted by fungicides and antifungals. Um, and this is good, but it's also bad because it means we're only targeting very specific areas of fungal biology or fungal development. And that means that you can build up resistance really quickly um, instead of sort of having a more broader approach, looking at things that are more specific mm. to the fungus rather than, you know, saying, let's cut off how you take up glucose and I take up glucose, plants take up glucose, that doesn't, animals take up, insects take up glucose. So these sort of strategies that we've used in the past have been great, but they probably need to be redefined and sort of refined a little bit more. That is just so fascinating. I just don't, it's something that we just don't have much in conversation talking about fungicides or fungicidal resistance. Antibiotic resistance kind of gets all the um, airplay. It was great to recently see some funguses coming on the WHO list of mm. you know of pathogens. Yep. Yep. That must have been a yeah, exciting so, moment for you guys. Yeah, Candida albicans and Candida auris, they're uh, at the top of that uh, fungal priority pathogens list. Yeah, and is this for human health? 
Yes. Yes. Um, there's also um, Aspergillus species that cause sort of um, uh, asthma and, and, and lots of problems with sort of breathing COPD and stuff like that. Aspergillus is yeah. really interesting because that, that's one that's actually ubiquitous in the atmosphere. So we're all breathing in Aspergillus f- spores every day uh, and our lungs are just naturally removing them. So if you're in the hospital and you're immune compromised, you're by default very uh, well at risk of getting that infection in your lungs. Yeah. I'm so glad we're bringing this to the forefront of the conversation. Thank you so much for coming onto the show, both of you. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein A Go-Go on 3RRR. Ingeniously, Tim found for us Fungus Hunters, which was just perfect for our uh, last guests. Ray, you had some thoughts. Well, well, first of all, I, I incredibly enjoyed that, that interview, and I learned so much. And I also learned I still have no excuses about not eating mushrooms. It's more of a preference than... Uh, there's nothing else there because, you know, they're fungi. Um, uh, one thing that, that did come up, and I went, oh, I should ask Dr. Laura about this, was I, I had been reading this, this story where they were CRISPR tools for gene editing. There's, they, they've actually been put out as more user-friendly for maybe labs that don't have quite the big pockets to to run gene editing. And what we're seeing is that in, in different countries, particularly in Africa, CRISPR seems to be received with a more open approach about gene editing for crops. And there, I saw a great example about sorghum, which has a weed that can attach to it and steal nutrients and water from the plant so that they're within a species, they're taking variants of sorghum, and using CRISPR to gene edit a new form of sorghum that's all genes from its own species. But governments are on board with this, and that most of the regulations across three or four large countries in Africa that are growing sorghum are quite comfortable with as long as you're pulling genes from the same species, you can actually make genetically modified plants for full crops. And there seems to be a different approach and feeling about genetically modified crops in these countries because it could just be need and face facing the need but it's also it's not just one plant they're talking about a lot of different places in agriculture and i was just curious this seems like something CRISPR might have been intended for and europe has a very different approach to gmo and how export markets work that's going to be a question but they're talking about test crops and rolling out fields in the next year or two and i I thought it was a, a really interesting or different way to see CRISPR perceived by governments. Yeah, absolutely. It's been moving so fast. I mean, CRISPR's kind of, you know, the intention, of course, um, wasn't for CRISPR-edited babies, which also do exist in China. Um, but, you know, for agriculture, and I think it might be a position of needs must in Africa, whether, I mean, how soon that will be rolled out everywhere and long-term effects on, you know, environment, knock-on effects, who knows. But I think it's amazing that everything's moving so quickly. I mean, CRISPR is something that's just so, so simple to do. Um, speaking of someone who's never done it myself, but everybody does it in the lab daily, and they tell me it's very, very easy to do. Keeps the costs down as well. Oh, wow. You know, which is, which as you said, you know, um, but um, yeah, uh, Nobel Prize winning stuff. Scarlett, what are your thoughts? Oh, uh, well, actually, I was going to ask you a follow-up question on that. Uh, if, you, if things are moving so quickly, is there any need for caution? Oh, uh, what do you mean by moving quickly? Things are moving quickly in its applications, and certainly in different aspects of laboratory science, it's gone from you know not being an everyday tool to now being an everyday tool. You know, a few years ago it was voodoo, like who's got CRISPR to work? But you know now it now it is quite mainstream, and you know now it is being used in agriculture. So who where are we going to be five years from now? And what did happen to those CRISPR edited babies in China? Yeah, they, didn't they disappear? They a bit? disappeared. They sort of. Is there, is there, do we have any updates? 
No, I haven't heard. Of I it. haven't I haven't googled in a while, but I, I went down a dark rabbit hole um, a couple of years ago on uh, looking up that case. It was really fascinating. Yeah, you know, but I think you're, there. There are two things there, though. I mean, you've described it as a, as a research tool. It's every day. It's in labs. It's kept costs down. It's in. It's, it sounds like it's it's driven discovery in in a new way. Absolutely. And and then that's pretty exciting. The the application use in agriculture is interesting, uh, in the idea of of modifying finding ways to modify genes for for plants. I mean, what, you know, and geneticists may. I'm sure I'm going to get this quite a little wrong, but you know. We have been crossbreeding plants for favorable attributes for thousands of years, actually, to get the plant thing we, a plant True. to do the thing we want. And to some extent, while there's lots of risks and things, well, risks are things we don't understand. CRISP is just accelerating that process. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, of course, it, it seems um, much scarier than just a simple crossbreed of plants rather than uh, when you go in yeah. and you start to modify genes and there might be off-target effects that you don't understand. That does sound a little... Uh, a little scarier but um there we go thanks that's all the time we have today ray scarlett thank you so much for joining me it's been a fascinating oh, day today it was exciting i love the stories and the, and the guests yeah loving the guests tim thank you so much for pushing all the buttons for us today we couldn't do it without you thank you um for our twitter feed which is being ongoing we're out of time we're going to um hand it over to our next show um tim our next show Edith. No, Edith's not with us today. We have Pat to Paddock, which is very exciting, um, coming up next. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks for listening to 3 Triple R, and we'll be back next week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.